All right, let's go. Let's get it. We're in the book of Daniel. If you have your Bibles, let's go there. Daniel chapter 1. If you have not done it yet, would you hop on the Vintage Guest Wireless Network? Password is Vintage, lowercase. And you will be able to find the teaching notes there and track with them. And uh, we're excited about that um, opportunity for you to do that. I want to highlight this. Please grab the notes, print them out at home, study with them. Do not just take what we study on a Sunday morning. Go sit with the Holy Spirit and ask him to highlight, bring things back to the surface because we are as a family in this journey together studying. To that end, as we go through this book of Daniel, my hope is that you guys are reading through the book of Daniel. You're writing stuff down, stuff the Lord's pointing out to you. And if you get that, send it in. I want this to be a family study where we're going through the text together. We're discovering what God has for us together. It's not just me listening to me talk, because that would get boring really fast. Okay, during the third year of King Jehoiakim's reign in Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it with his armies. The Lord gave him victory over King Jehoiakim of Judah. When Nebuchadnezzar returned to Babylon, he took with him some of the sacred objects of the temple of God and placed them in the treasure house of his gods in the land of Babylonia. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, who was in charge of the palace officials, to bring to the palace some of the young men of Judah's royal family and other noble families who had been brought to Babylon as captives. Select only strong, healthy, and good-looking young men, he said. Make sure they're well-versed in every branch of learning, are gifted with knowledge and good sense, and have the poise needed to serve in the royal palace. Teach these young men the language and literature of the Babylonians. Let's pray. Father, as we stand and we, as we stand at this moment in time and we look at these scriptures, we ask for you to open things to our eyes. Lord, we don't want to just study history. We want to study history, learn from it so we can apply it to our life today. So we ask for your wisdom and your grace as we look at the scriptures. Lead us, guide us, teach us in Jesus' name. Amen. So Babylonian captivity is at hand. Jerusalem's been taken over by Nebuchadnezzar, and what he's done is he's taken not just the wealth of the city, but the future of the city. For the last two weeks, we've been setting the stage. We've been looking at, first week, we looked at Jehoiakim, and we looked at who this king was, and if you remember, Jehoiakim caused us to ask the question, well, where did Jehoiakim come from? And we began to look at Josiah, who's Jehoiakim's father. And Josiah makes a decision in the latter part of his life to go out and go to war against the, the king of Egypt. And the Lord had actually told the king of Egypt to go to war against the king of Babylon, but Josiah goes ahead and engages him, and it ends up costing him his city because Egypt takes over Jerusalem, and then Nebuchadnezzar fights against Egypt, Nebuchadnezzar wins, Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon wins, and then he comes back to Jerusalem to claim what was his that he earned through winning the war, which is where we're at. You're like, okay, everybody good? You're like, wow, that was a lot. And the Babylonians had a, what I would call an assimilation process when they would defeat people. They didn't just want to take the wealth and destroy the economy and make them dependent. They wanted to take the future. They wanted to take the best and the brightest. And they would pull them out of the cities and they'd bring them into their own land because of what they understood was a simple principle. If we can cause you, we can retrain you and cause you to forget where you're from, we don't really have to deal with your people anymore because you'll naturally lead them into our way. And so we looked at a question last week out of this statement, the Lord gave him victory, Nebuchadnezzar. And we asked it, like, what kind of, what was God up to? Our loving, gracious father that would willingly hand his people over to this pagan king. What was in his mind? What was he up to? There's two things that we looked at. The first one being, if we study the people of God through this time period, 
Prior to Josiah, there has been a, a, a lineage of, of kings that did evil in the sight of the Lord, is what the scriptures would say about them. They were not good men. And they had led the people of God into all these detestable practices, is the way the scriptures would reveal it. What the detestable practices were is the people of this Mesopotamian region believed in multiple gods, a pantheon of gods. And so what they were saying to, to Yahweh, our God, is we don't discount that you're God. We just don't think you're the God. We think you're one of the gods. And we want to make sure we give honor to all the other gods as well as you. So that, that way our crops don't fail. We want to make sure there's rain. So we're going to pray to all these other gods. And by doing this, they were mixing their faith to God with their faith to other gods. And so God, the first thing he's accomplishing by letting this captivity happen is he's teaching his people a lesson. You will have no other gods but me. Now we could just camp there and say, now that's a pretty relevant thing to just look at. But the second part that he was, that he was doing with this process is the one that we spent the most time on last week, which is God was stepping into a situation to reveal to the watching world that all of these other gods were not in fact different paths to God. They were lies born out of the pit of hell, born out of Lucifer's fall when he said, I will be like the most high. The word like there is to be compared to, held on par with. And they, there's all kinds of different language and different nomenclature given to these religious figures. But at the root of it, it's a very similar story that has different language to it. And we call this the great deception. So here's Yahweh stepping into a situation saying, I am going to show you who is God. Not in an arrogant, insecure place. I actually believe it's a compassionate place because he sees how devoutly religious they are. He sees how focused they are. His heart is, you need to know that's a falsehood that you're following and I'm the real thing. Let's pick back up in our reading. So the king assigned them, these young people that have been pulled away as cap, from the caps of captives, he assigned them a daily ration of the best food and wine from his own kitchens. They were to be trained for a three-year period, and then some of them will be made his advisors in the royal court. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah were the four, four of the young men who were chosen, all from the tribe of Judah. The chief official renamed them with these Babylonian names. Daniel was called Belteshazzar, Hananiah was called Shadrach, Mishael was called Meshach, and Azariah was called Abednego. So here in Daniel chapter one, we're introduced to the four central characters of this book. And for the next few chapters, we're gonna study these young men and their lives. We're gonna get into the retraining process. What was it? What did it include? Because it reads in English a little benign. It was pretty aggressive if you really study it. But what I wanna focus on today is this question. Who were they? What can we learn from who they were? What can we extrapolate? What can we apply to our lives just by studying who these young men were? The first thing we know about them is that they were of royal or noble families, that they were selected of royal or noble families. What does that tell us? It means they would have come out of the house of Josiah. There hasn't been enough time transpire under Jehoiakim's reign for them to grow up under Jehoiakim. They would have been raised under Josiah which means they would have grown up under Josiah's religious reforms and they would have been impacted by what I would call his pursuit of God. Now, if we go back and look at Josiah, remember with me, King Josiah takes the throne at age eight. 
By age 16, he makes a conclusion that the number one thing he needs in his life is a relationship with God. So the scriptures will say that at age 16, Josiah began to seek his God. The word seek here is to bore into, to carve into. And so it means he, he fashioned a place for him and God. It's, it's this very clear picture of someone who is over and over systematically working to create a pocket. Think about that in your own life. What's it look like to systematically work to create a pocket for you and God to build relationship. Upon doing this, one of the first things that happens for Josiah is that they, they find the scriptures in the temple and they bring them to him. And the, and the scriptures will say that, that he begins to read them aloud and weep. And he has this epiphany. He says, I know what's wrong with us. We haven't been living according to what this says. And I want us to consider the power of that picture. Josiah, through a simple decision to build an encounter with God and to live obedient to the scriptures, sets this next generation of young people up for this incredibly difficult situation. So what does that tell us about the power of our pursuit? What does that tell you about the power of your pursuit? It tells me that our pursuit of God, yours, mine, not might, but will have a life-altering impact on those that I have been graced to influence. And it is so easy in our day and our time to just assume this is just my faith, it's mine. I wanna encourage you, I wanna challenge you. Your journey with God, your choice to carve out, to bore out that place for you and him, your willingness to submit to the scriptures and say, I will be a man, I will be a woman that will live according to this text, has a life-altering impact to everybody you touch. It's not just familial, it's in the marketplace as well. There's a term called... Oikos, one of, my, one of the pastors I served under would talk about this all the time as, as it signifies the, the people group that we're in relationship with. Whether they're saved or unsaved, there are people who our lives touch all the time. And I want to encourage us, challenge us, and call it out. The way you chase God, your willingness to live by the scriptures impacts their life. Perhaps sets them up for something they don't see coming. It says that these young men were selected for certain qualities. Select only strong, healthy, and good-looking young men. Make sure they're well-versed in every branch of learning, are gifted with knowledge and good sense, and have the poise needed to serve in the royal palace. What it tells us is there's something about them that drew the king's attention. And I want to look at these phrases. The first one is strong, healthy, and good-looking. It's a little funny when you read it in the English, but I think it points to something that we kind of miss. I think it points to the idea that they were disciplined young men. Because discipline is the willingness to endure something, whether it be a, a diet or a training program or some type of regimen. It's the willingness to endure for a reason, for a purpose. And I think that's what this shows us about these young men. That they were young men who were willing. My, let me put it into sports terms. My, my, my youngest son is a soccer player and we talk all the time in our home. Your performance isn't based on how you practice, it's based on your willingness to hurt outside of practice. 
What are you gonna do to improve yourself? What kind of discipline are you gonna appropriate to become the person you say you wanna be? You see, discipline takes what I say and puts it into action. I can aspire to greatness, I can aspire to X, Y, and Z. Discipline is the thing that speaks to what I'm willing to do behind closed doors when nobody's paying attention to create in myself that person. And I think these young men were disciplined. They took care of themselves. What do you, how, do you, how do you get there, Greg? Think about it, they grew up in privilege. They grew up in the palace. Without question, had servants, had people catering to them, and yet they're still strong, they're still healthy. They, still were, they never allowed all of that to inform laziness in them. The king says, make sure they're well-versed and gifted in every branch of learning. I would say this, that becoming well-versed and, gift, well, well and gifted in every branch of learning is not an accident. Because for that to be said of someone, they have to have focused and put in the work to become those people. What is learning if it's not a testimony to study and the willingness to remain focused? Now, when we read this, some will say, no, 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 they were gifted. They're gifted with knowledge, good sense. See, this is what happens when we study the scriptures without understanding the original language. Because the original language here for the word gifted is the Hebrew word yadah. And it doesn't mean to be endowed with something without work. It actually is a completely different word, and it means to have experiential, tangible knowledge through perception. It means that they had spent time working in these areas to develop their excellence. And what it speaks to me is their pursuit. I would call it a craftsman pursuit. That I'm never willing to accept anything less than command of what's been put in front of me. And I'm going to give myself to it, immerse myself in it, because I would understand this, that whatever thing that God has put in front of me is something he's offered me the opportunity to become excellent in, to give a command. And sometimes we will, we will say it this way. There's this thing I want to be great at. Here's what I would say. If there's something you believe you'll be great at and you're not willing to be great at what's in front of you, you won't be great at that thing you want to be great at. Because becoming great at something, becoming excellent in something is a pursuit issue. It's not a skill set. We learn the skill set to become excellent. And what I see in these young men is a willingness to, to humble themselves and just dig in and become excellent, to spend time in it, to learn it. It says they need to have the poise needed to serve in the palace. This word poise in Hebrew is a sharpness or ability to stand in a situation. The phrase points to respectfulness and grace, that they were protocoled and gracious young men. In other words, they looked like they belonged in the palace, the way they handled themselves and carried themselves. What it indicates to me is the way that they treated the world around them. Now, if we go back and we study Josiah, Josiah is of the lineage of David, which means that these young men would have been influenced by Josiah who was taking all his cues from his forefather, David. There's a story about David that we learned something in the kingdom that I think is incredibly important. It's prophesied over King David that he will, he will become the king. He's just David at this time. He's a shepherd. It's prophesied, declared over him, he is to be the next king. The king at the time, whose name was Saul, learns of this and decides he can't be king if he's dead. And so he begins to chase David 
because he's going to attempt to take out his life. David's on the run. David hides in a cave with his men. King Saul is pursuing him, happens to need to relieve himself. So he decides to use a cave. He doesn't know that he's using the same cave David's hiding in. So David's in the shadows of the cave, cave hidden, and all of a sudden in walks the king, who's trying to kill him. And David's men whisper to him, hey, this is your moment. God's delivered him into your hands. Take his head off. You can be king. We don't have to be on the run anymore. We can have people cook for us. And so David will scoot forward while Saul's doing whatever Saul's doing. And he cuts off a piece of his robe. Silently, without being detected. And Saul will, will leave the cave and David will come to the mouth of the cave and hold up this piece of his cloak and say, my father, my father, you can see God delivered you into my hands and I chose not to kill you. And instantly David gets convicted. And there's this incredible principle before we study the principle, what we know of King David is that God will say this of King David, an important phrase. King David is a man after God's own heart. So he's a man whose who's very heart DNA so aligns with God that it, it could be said he's fashioned in the same way. What I like to say about it is we know that God is a fan of the way David thinks. You say, well, David did some bad things. He did, repented of them. God's still a fan of repentance. What I want to teach us out of this is David will say this to his, one of his advisors who says, I don't understand why you didn't take his head off. He says, it, it, it's, a, it's a fearful thing to touch the Lord's anointed. And David teaches two things in this. He teaches honor and teaches protocol. What I'm submitting to you is that these young men would have grown up under Josiah who would have studied David who would have understood these principles. You see, honor deals with my attitudes towards leadership or authority, be it God or man. Protocol deals with my behavior, my actions towards leadership or authority, be it God or men. And the king was looking for young men who knew how to stand in a place of authority. And so I would submit to you they're men that are honored, honoring and protocoled. So let's put all this together. Maybe we say it this way, that God was using all of these character qualities to cause them to stand out. What I want to highlight about that is that all of these character qualities were things that they had done and developed prior to this moment. What they had done prior was being put on display. You see, our character may be revealed in the public place, but it's developed in the private place. And these young men end up being very faithful to the desires of God for their life. And you and I never know what God's going to do with our faithfulness, with our decision to develop our character, with our passion to live the scriptures. We never know what he's going to do with it. There's a part of this that I want to bring to the surface that I think we miss. The favor of God, the character of God, this thing we see them develop is actually intended to draw favor in the marketplace, to draw favor in the world. 
We always focus on being criticized for being believers, persecuted for being believers. Here's what I want to lay in front of us. This character that God wants to develop in us will cause us to draw favor in the marketplace and in the world. Proverbs 22 says it this way. You find any truly competent worker, they will serve kings rather than ordinary men. This word truly competent is this same concept of excellence, same concept of giving ourselves to something. What's the point in all this for us? Church, be diligent in the secret, unknown times. Because this is the place your character is built. And God will use character. Because we can only be in public who we are authentically in private. Let's stand.